We all long for justice, don't we? We want to see justice done. We want to see the man who murdered 20 children and 6 adults in an American elementary school yesterday getting his just desserts. But he's killed himself. Has he escaped? We want justice for the people of the world who are oppressed and downtrodden. We want justice for migrants and refugees in our land who are often treated abominably as people take advantage of their status. We want justice when we are mistreated in some way or other. And justice is often associated with good leadership. We want good leaders. Leaders who are both competent, but are not selfish. Leaders who use their power for the common good, not to amass wealth for themselves. We want noble leaders who will bring justice. And the people of Judah needed such leaders. They needed leaders who feared God and brought justice to his people. 300 years before the time of Isaiah, God had given David the throne of Israel. God had promised David that he, his dynasty, would rule forever. But the son of David, who was sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, now was an evil king. Sitting on David's throne was Ahaz, a man who did not fear God. In between the time that God had given David the throne and the time of this prophecy from Isaiah, the nation of Israel had been split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom kept the name Israel, though sometimes it's called Ephraim, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. And two weeks ago, we looked at Isaiah chapter 7 and 8, and we saw how God was going to save his people Judah from the alliance of two enemy kings, the king of Israel and the king of Syria. King Ahaz feared this alliance. He feared these people, but he, he didn't fear God. And he didn't trust God to save them. And remember, he called for help to Assyria. But Isaiah said that, yes, Israel, Israel and Syria would be defeated by Assyria, but because Judah refused to trust God, then Judah itself would, would almost be destroyed by Assyria as well. And the sign that God was going to save his people from these guys and judge his people through these guys was Emmanuel, the child whose birth, which was going to say, God is with us. And there was an initial fulfillment in the time of Isaiah through the birth of his own son, but the ultimate fulfillment would await the true Emmanuel, the virgin-born child who would really be God with us. The one who would save his people, not from two kings, but from their sins. And then last week in chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, we saw a future hope for God's people. God's people were under his judgment because of sin. There was gloom. And, but there was hope at the other side. For the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. God was going to bring light to them. And God was going to bless them. God was going to rescue them. He talks about it in terms of multiplication. Talks about it in terms of harvest. It talks about it in terms of, of uh, 
winning battles, because that's, that's how God's blessing had been expressed in the physical model of the kingdom, that is, Israel in the land. That the reality was going to be much greater, because the prophet was using the categories of the past to describe the future. We'll talk more about that later. But more importantly, the promise of that coming child, which we saw back in Isaiah 7, was, was further developed. Remember the words we heard? Verse 6 to 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. See how Isaiah is moving from his own time to the time of the Messiah. And then now he, after that, he kind of like moves back to the prophet's own time. And so for the rest of chapter 9 to halfway through chapter 10, he talks about the judgment that was going to fall on the northern kingdom, Israel. God was going to destroy that northern kingdom, Israel, for all kinds of reasons. Verse, for chapter 9, verse 9, it's because of their conceit. They speak pride and arrogance of heart. Or because they rejected him in verse 13. They didn't turn to him or inquire of him. Or because they oppressed the poor in chapter 10 verse 2. They turned aside the needy from justice and robbing the poor and making spoil of the widows and the fatherless. God was going to destroy Israel. But then in the second half of chapter 10, he turns his guns on Assyria. Assyria, verse 5, was the rod of his anger, the staff in his hands. In other words, Assyria was God's instrument for his purposes. Assyria was God's instrument to bring judgment on all these other nations. But then Assyria became arrogant. And the king of Assyria thought, verse 13 of chapter 10, Oh, it's by the strength of my hand I've done all this. It's by my wisdom, by my understanding. I've removed boundaries, plundered treasures, I've... Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. I, I'm pretty powerful. I've achieved all these things. Cut off all these nations. Destroyed all these peoples. And God says to him, You think an axe, verse 14, can boast over the one who uses it? Or a sore over the one who wields it? Know your place, Assyria. You're just an instrument in my hand. Think you can fight me? I will utterly destroy you, both soul and body, Assyria. Incidentally, if God chooses to use you in some way for his purposes, don't let that be a cause of pride, will you? You and I are instruments in God's hands. If he chooses to use us, that's him being kind, not us being great. Don't fall into the Assyrian trap for God will have to put us in our place. And so in the last part of chapter 10, God promises that a remnant, a small remainder, uh, you know, a bucky, a small, small one, will, will survive. In chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse 20, there will be a remnant of Israel and there will be survivors of the house of Jacob. And this small number of people, verse 22, will return 
to the northern kingdom, the Israel. And verse 24, God will preserve people in Zion, that is in Jerusalem, part of the southern kingdom. He would rescue them like he rescued people from Egypt many years beforehand. And in verse 28 to 32, we see, we see lots of names. Ayat, Mignon, Mishmash, Geba, Rama, Gibeat, Gilead, all these other names. You see, see the list of names there? What's he talking about? Well, all those names are different towns. Different towns and different little villages leading up to Jerusalem. The picture is the Assyrian army is, is going one town to the next, 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 to the next. Taking one by one by one by one by one until in verse 32... They are at Jerusalem itself, shaking their fist, laying siege to the city. And then verse 33, the Lord shows his great power and he cuts them down. And again, this prophecy was fulfilled in Isaiah's lifetime. Assyria did indeed come destroy Israel, the northern kingdom, and the countryside and towns of Judah. They even made it all the way to Jerusalem, made a siege there, and then God supernaturally saved his people by killing 185,000 Assyrian soldiers overnight. The rest of the Assyrian army turned around and went home with a tail between their legs. And then we come to our chapter for today. Chapter 11. And it seems that in chapter 11 we are jumping forward again. Because if you look at chapter 11 verse 1, it presupposes another cutting down. The cutting down in chapter 11 verse 1 is not the cutting down of Assyria as it was in the end of chapter 10, but there's a stump, which is a stump of Jesse. Who is Jesse? Jesse is the father of David, isn't it? And so the Davidic dynasty has been chopped down. Now, at the end of chapter 10, God has preserved the Davidic dynasty. The throne of David is secure in Jerusalem. Uh, so, there must be a big jump between the fulfillment of chapter 10 and the fulfillment of chapter 11. Chapter 11 is now jump again further forward into the future. And as Isaiah has been jumping to and fro the fulfillment of it in his lifetime, to the fulfillment in Emmanuel, that child is going to be the mighty God, Prince of Peace, will rule the world, etc. Seems that most likely that's where he's going back to. Allah. And indeed that is the case. Because in chapter 1, chapter 11, verse 1 to 5, he once again speaks about God's perfect king. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now remember again, chop down the tree, you've got the stump, isn't it? Stump down the bottom, right? Uh, and that, the chopping down fulfilled about 135 years after the Assyrian invasion, when the exile came, the, 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 the village kingship was cut off, and you know, they all went off into Babylon, and all that's left is a stump. It's a bit in the ground. And then sometime after that, you see, out of the stump comes a little green shoot. And from those roots in the ground, a plant begins to grow again. And that grows and grows and becomes a branch and, and bears fruit. 
And so the Davidic kingship is not wiped out after all. God promised David it would last forever. And hey, looks like it was going to be wiped, but it's not. God's promises are still good. And here's what it says about this the shoot, this branch, verse two. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Not just not just come upon him for a time and for a purpose, shall rest upon him permanently. This is the spirit that this is the king upon whom is the spirit, the anointed one. This king will will he will think rightly for the for the spirit of wisdom and understanding will be upon him. He will act rightly because the spirit of wisdom, uh, counsel and might will be upon him. His heart will be right because the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord will be upon him. And so this king will be nothing like King Ahaz. Even though they come from the same tree. Remember, Ahaz feared those two enemy kings more than he feared Yahweh. Not so this king. This king has a spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. This king fears the Lord, and in fact, chapter 11, verse 3 says, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Isn't that great? You don't usually see the words delight and fear in the same sentence, do you? This king knows that it is right to fear God, but he loves God so much that he delights to fear God. And this king is no ordinary king. Because even the best ordinary king can't mete out perfect justice because well, he can't know everything. Ordinary king, he's dependent on the evidence that is presented to him. But, but this king, this, this future king will judge perfectly. Verse 3 continues, He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. That's not an amazing king. What an amazing judge. The all-knowing and therefore perfect judge. Who can judge rightly because he knows rightly. And this judge doesn't just dispense justice. He executes it as well. Verse 4 continues, He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. This is not a pushover king. He's, he strikes the earth with the rod of He kills, he destroys, he, he, he executes his judgment. But he does so rightly. His judgments are good. They are just. Verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is a good king. This is the perfect king, the perfectly just king. The king that you want to have as your king.
Well, we've seen God's future king. What does it look like when this king reigns? What, what, is this, what, what characterizes this king? Well, in verses 6 to 9, Isaiah paints the picture of, of God's perfect place under the king. Look at the description here. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with a young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, and the young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. It's interesting pictures, isn't it? Now, Isaiah is not talking literalistically here. He's painting a picture. And what is a picture of? What does, what does this remind you of from elsewhere in the Old Testament? Yes, I heard it. Eden, isn't it? It does. It's a, it's a picture of Eden. It's a picture of, of God's perfect place, the garden before the fall, before humankind sinned against God. It's a picture of what it's like if there's, if there's no sin, no rebellion, no curse, no fall. And, and when this king reigns, then, then that's what it's like. The curse will be reversed. God's people will be in God's place under, under God's blessing and rule once again. And this place is just like Eden. But oh, it's just Eden. In verse 9, it is, verse 9, it is my holy mountain. So it's Eden, and then it's, 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 it's Zion, the holy mountain, where Jerusalem. And then verse 9 continues, for the earth shall be full, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. And it's the whole world, you see. You see the picture? It's, it's God's promised king. Ruling the world with, with perfect justice. Putting everything right. Where at last things are, are what they meant to be. How God intended them from the beginning of, of creation. That's God's people in God's place under God's blessing and His rule through His perfect King. That's what happens when this King reigns. And who will be God's people who live in God's place under God's King? Well... Verse 10 to 16, we read about God's united people. Verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. The root of Jesse. Now, we've seen that Jesus is the shoot of Jesse. Well, but now this, this king is not just, we discover he's not just from the line of Jesse, but somehow or other he's the Source of Jesse's line as well. And this root of Jesse stands as a signal for the nations and the nations inquire of him. The nations are drawn to him. This, the nations are the Gentiles. People like, like you and me who don't come from ethnic Israel. And they are drawn to this, this king of Israel. Because you see, his kingdom consists of Number of people. First of all, chapter 11, verse 11, uh, verse 11, you've got the people from the northern kingdom. Verse 11, it's a remnant, it's a small proportion. Verse 11, in that day, the Lord will extend his hand a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Kash, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, from the coastlands of the sea. In other words, all the People from the northern kingdom, 
remnant, small number, they are representative of the whole, they come in. And in verse 12, this perfect king, he is a signal for the nations, for the Gentiles, for people like us. And then, it's a signal for the nations. He assembles the banished of Israel, there's the northern kingdom again, gathers the dispersed of Judah, the southern kingdom again, from the four corners of the earth. So God brings back the people that he has scattered from the northern kingdom, people from the southern kingdom, they are united once again under one king. And then also included are people from the Gentiles. And that rivalry, that division between northern kingdom and southern kingdom, they're gone, verse 13. The jealousy of Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom, shall depart. Those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah. And Judah shall not harass Ephraim. They are united now. And they are fulfilling their destiny as the people of God. Verse 14. They shall sweep down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west. And together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hands against Edom and Moab. And the Ammonites shall obey them. You remember back in the book of Judges? There were people that were left in the land. And God said, I'm not going to give them over to you. You're supposed to conquer them. I'm not because you're sinful. I'm going to leave them there. Israel have all failed in their conquest of the land because of sin. But... But this restored Israel. They will do what Israel was meant to do. They would fulfill the destiny of the people of God. Furthermore, what God would do for them would surpass and outclass what God did for their ancestors, the old Israel. He will provide them a, a greater redemption. Remember in the Exodus, God made a way for them to pass through the Red Sea. Open up the Red Sea and they walk over the sea. They walk on dry land. Right? Wow, pretty amazing, isn't it? But now you look in verse 15. God's going to do even more. God will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with scorching breath and strike it in the seven channels and lead people across in sandals. You think before it was pretty good, huh? You open a way and coming in. Ah, oh, we're going to get oh, the whole Red Sea be gone again. Bigger! Then the Exodus. You walk across on your slippers. Right? This is bigger. God's doing even more. A bigger redemption than, than he even have in the Exodus. And he brings his people back from the exile, just like he brought them from Egypt many years beforehand. There'll be a highway, verse 16, from Assyria, for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came out of Egypt. Wow. Big prophecies, isn't it? Big expectations. We haven't really seen anything literally, historically, that was bigger than the Exodus, have we? How do you understand this prophecy? How do you interpret it? Well, there are two big principles that we must understand when we're interpreting Old Testament prophecy. And the first one is this. The prophets speak about the future in the categories of the past. The prophets speak about the future in the categories of the past. You see, 
Israel's history was a model, a shadow, a picture, a type that points to the kingdom of God. It was about to be destroyed because of sin, but it was a model of the real thing that God was going to bring in through Christ that would be eternal. Let me give you an analogy. Before this building was constructed, the architect made a model of it. It was displayed prominently at the entrance of the cathedral and everyone looking and go, wow. Anybody here at the time? Anyone remember that? No, huh? Okay, no, this is a long time ago. Okay. Anybody ever seen the model? Anyone seen the model? No? Ah. It's been put away, I don't know where. All right? It's been put away because no one looks at it anymore. Why? Because the, uh, the reality is here, isn't it? I don't look at the model. Before the reality came, however, to describe this, you used the model. And if you wanted to describe it, then you... Well, you have to know now, the real hall, even if you know the model, the real hall is not made out of cardboard and matchsticks, right? It's, but the cardboard and matchsticks the model is a, is a, is a representation of, of this thing that's here. Now, imagine, you go back to, you know, eight years ago, imagine the model was about to be destroyed. But it doesn't matter because this, the real hall is about to be built. But imagine you don't know anything about the hall. You don't have the vocabulary to describe the steel and the, and the concrete and the glass. How would you describe the building of this hall to people who only know the architect's model? Well, you say, you know that, that white cardboard that, that goes against the, the inside wall? That will be destroyed, but, but it's going to be restored, but, but bigger and stronger. It's like very tough, not like the cardboard last time. Right? And then you know that, that see-through plastic on the opposite wall? Well, it's going to be huge and thick. And in the morning, the sun will come streaming in. But you better go to smack too, and it'll be nice. Right? And you remember the, the red cardboard on top? Oh, that's going to be really big as well. You see, you describe the reality in terms of the model, wouldn't you? Even though the model is just a model. And when the reality comes, well, it looks, it looks the same, but different. Right? And that's how God's always done it for us. Now, for example, back in the garden, God described the defeat of the devil. He used terms and concepts that Adam and Eve were familiar with. The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And at the same time, his heel will be crushed. That's the picture. What's the reality? Not a literal man stepping on a literal snake, but a real man dying on a cross and thus defeating the devil by taking away sin and guilt, the only hold the devil had. It's real, but it's not literal. The prophets describe the future in the terms of the past. And so, now, we've come to the other side, we, we can see that future. Let's look at the past. In the prophecy, who is the king? 
the king is the one who is the, the son of David, the, the best king in the model. David, king, who is the, the son of David. And, but he's a perfect king. What's the kingdom like? Well, it's, it's like Eden, because that's the best picture in the past of being God's place and the God's rule. In fact, the Eden one is even before the model, isn't it? It's a perfect place. Who will God's people be? Well, they'll be the people of God, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, reunited with, with the Gentiles coming also. What will the nation do? They will fulfill the destiny of the people of God. How do you describe the destiny of the people of God? Well, what did Israel fail to? Oh, they didn't get the nations. They'll be, be conquering the nations. The saints, they'll fulfill that destiny. How will they be formed? Oh, by a mighty act of redemption, like the Exodus, but bigger, better. But it's like the Exodus. How does it turn out? Well, we know that God's Davidic king was the Lord Jesus, the son of David. When Jesus came, the Davidic kingship had been cut off. There was no son of David on the throne. It looked like God's promises had failed. But God's promises don't fail. And a little shoot sprung up from the stump of David. Jesus Christ, the son of David. He's the one upon whom the Spirit rested. Come with me to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Keep your finger in Isaiah, I think. But come to Matthew chapter 3. This is at Jesus' baptism. In verse 16. Jesus is baptized. Page 975. If you're using a church Bible, Jesus is baptized. It comes out of the water. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, Isaiah said. Or, on the screen, uh, uh, John chapter 1. John bore witness says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I didn't know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said, He upon whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who was baptized with the Holy Spirit. I have seen, I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the one upon whom the Spirit of God shall rest. Jesus is the one who judges the world with righteousness. In fact, Jesus said, don't judge by appearances, but judge with the right judgment, because that's what he does. In fact, he is the one whom God appointed to judge the living and the dead. Jesus said, speaking about himself in the third person, up on the screen, next one is John chapter 5. Um, next one again. Yeah, John chapter 5 was part of our Old Testament reading. The hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice talking about himself and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You can't escape judgment by dying. Jesus will raise you up and then judge you. And Jesus judges justly. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he will judge justly. 
Jesus is the perfect king, the, the perfect judge whom, whom Isaiah spoke about. And then, what about the people of the kingdom when you get to the reality? Well, in the New Testament, you know, the citizens of the kingdom are the Jews who put their trust in Jesus, people from the southern kingdom. The Samaritans who put their trust in Jesus, that's people from the northern kingdom. And then the Gentiles who put their trust in Jesus, people from the nations. In fact, the book of Acts is structured around that scheme. The remnant of Judah, the minority of true believers who are Jews. And then the remnant of Israel, the minority of true believers from Samaria. United under King Jesus as his word spreads from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And then the kingdom opens up to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth, as Cornelius and others come into the kingdom and the nations are drawn to Israel's king, as Isaiah had said. Come in. Bow to King Jesus. Be part of his kingdom. We also know that the kingdom was forged by a mighty act of redemption. Bigger than the exodus of old, as Isaiah said. Certainly not the physical return from exile that's described by people like Ezra and Nehemiah, because it's not people coming back in drips and drabs, nothing like big like the exodus. But you remember how Luke writes about the transfiguration of Jesus? He says that Moses and Elijah appeared to him in glory and spoke of his departure. The word there is exodus which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And what are they talking about? They're talking about his death, isn't it? It's the cross. And remember how Jesus changed the Passover, which was in remembrance of the exodus of Egypt, into the Lord's Supper, which is a remembrance of his death. You see, the greatest act of redemption that we have seen is that when Jesus died to save his people by paying the penalty of sin on our behalf. That is the big exodus where God rescued his people not just from slavery in Egypt but from sin and death and hell. The big exodus. And so you see how the prophets are describing these things. Describing the Lord Jesus. Describing the people of God of the New Testament. Describing the redemption that comes from the cross. But using the categories that their people are familiar with. Categories of the past. The second big principle we must realize when interpreting the prophets is that the, the kingdom is now... And not yet. Kingdom is now, but also not yet. The prophets often see the coming of Jesus all in one go. It's like they speak of the, the completed hall. They, they, they use the terms of the model, but they're talking about the hall completed. But right now, we are living in the overlap of the ages. The kingdom has come, but the kingdom is still to come. The kingdom has been inaugurated, but the kingdom is still to be consummated. It's like, it's a bit like, when this hall was built, but it wasn't finished. You could go into the hall, the hall is there, 
Right? With rain, you won't get wet. You can, see, you can stand here. Right? You're in the hall. You can see the parameters of the hall. But the hall wasn't fully ready. The, the floor was there, but it was concrete. The, 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 the walls were there, but they were the bricks with that bit of concrete sticking out between them. You know what I mean? Yeah, no plaster. And you can see where the glass was going to be, but it's just put up tarpaulin in case it rains. And certainly no air conditioning or lights or fans. But, but the hall was there. It was built. It was the, the reality to which the model pointed. But it wasn't the comfortable hall that we enjoy now. Everything is done. It's like that with the kingdom, isn't it? The kingdom is here. But it's not here in all its glory. Jesus is king. He is the perfect king. But he hasn't come yet to judge the world. God has guaranteed he will by raising him from the dead, but, but that judgment only happens at the end of the age. And we are in God's place. We, we are in Christ. In Christ we have every spiritual blessing. We lack nothing. Election, adoption, forgiveness, information about God's plans, the Holy Spirit. We have been raised with Christ to heavenly places. Spiritually we have come to Zion, the Jerusalem that is above. But we still live in the fallen world. We live in a world under the curse that came through sin. and The world we live in doesn't look anything like Eden, does it? But the day will come when Jesus returns. And when the perfection of his justice will be seen. When he judges the world with perfect righteousness and brings us to that new creation which is like Eden, just better. Where God dwells with his people. But he will be our God and we will be his people under his blessing and rule. Where we will be able to enjoy him and each other without the sin that kind of gets in the way. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for, because the old order of things is done away. That's the not yet. But we have now. Now we have been redeemed. We have been bought with the price of Jesus' own blood. That is a greater redemption than the Exodus. But we are still waiting for the redemption of our bodies. We are still waiting for God to rescue us from this world and bring us to that new creation which he promised. Now, but not yet. So, how should we respond to all this? How should we react to the prophecy of Isaiah? Now that we are in this fulfilled but not fulfilled stage. Well, I think the big thing that we need to learn from here is to be thankful. Be thankful. First of all, let us ever be thankful that Jesus is our perfect king who brings in the perfect justice. Let us be thankful that he is our king. And he's not like any other king. The spirit is upon him. He's the king who delights in the fear of the Lord. We can have confidence with him as our king. We can be thankful that he's able to lead us forever. He's the only king that we need. He's the real king. And he's the one who will bring justice forever. 
Real justice. We can live in this world of injustice because we know that the king reigns and at the end the king will bring justice. We can hang on for that. We can be thankful that that will happen. At the same time, we need to make sure that we'll be on the right side of that justice when it comes, don't we? And to make sure that we've been forgiven, that we belong to him, lest we be the people upon whom he shows his wrath when he comes to bring justice to this world. But assuming that we are, that we are his people, then let us be thankful for God's perfect place. It's true that we still live in this fallen world, a world of suffering and pain and frustration and, and death and but we belong to the new creation. We see Isaiah painting a picture of it for us through the categories of Eden. We know that's where we belong. We, we look forward to that. We look forward to being God's people in God's place and God's blessing and rule forever. We must be thankful that that is our final destination. And if that is our home, and if that is our final destination, then we can put up with all kinds of things now, can't we? Because we look forward to the reality to come. Let's be thankful. And let's be thankful that we are God's people. In the promises in the Bible, there are often first and foremost promises for I, Israel and Judah. But now, in Isaiah, we see the root of Jesse stands as a sign for the nations. And we are the nations who have seen Jesus Christ, the King of Israel, and have been so drawn to Him that He is our King as well. And we are thankful to God for bringing us in. Once we were not part of God's people, we were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope, without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, we who are far off have been brought near through His blood. Ephesians 2 says. Thank God for that. We are privileged. We are given citizenship in the kingdom of Jesus. And how do we get that? Here's something else to be thankful for. That greater redemption. God has rescued us from sin and death and hell through the mighty act of judgment on the cross. We've got to be thankful for that. That Jesus took our place. And he has made us to be a people of his very own, eager to do good works. We've got to ride with that. He has redeemed us. And finally, let us be thankful that God fulfills his promises. We've seen the model. We've seen it destroyed in line with God's prophecy. But we've also seen the reality. Partly there, partly to come. And because of what we have seen, because of the fulfillment that we have seen in Jesus Christ, we know that the rest will follow. When you see the hall built, even when it's not ready for occupation, you know that we're serious about the building project. And it's going to be finished. 
And so we have confidence that God who fulfills all His promises in His Son will do so completely. That Jesus Christ who came to save us from our sins that first Christmas will return to judge the earth and to redeem us from this fallen world and bring us to his new creation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus, for the King, your perfect King, the King upon whom the, the Spirit rests, the King who delights in the fear of you, the King who judges with perfect justice, who knows all things and judges rightly. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege it is to have Jesus as our King. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege it is to live under his rule. Help us to live under his rule. Help us to obey him as he rules us by his Spirit through his word. Help us to love our King, appreciate our King. Help us to always be thankful that our King will judge the world with perfect justice so we can be confident as we live our lives now even when justice is not done and we don't see it. Thank you for the promise of the new creation your perfect place. Thank you that we will be with you in glory see all people your place under your blessing and rule, loving you, enjoying you, knowing you and, and all your people together. We can't imagine it properly, Lord, but we know from what we know. And we know you are good, and so we know that will be good. Help us to look forward to that. Help us to keep our eyes on that. Help us to keep our minds on that. Help us to have our treasure there. Not to get so caught up with the things of this world that we lose our focus. Forget the real treasure. It's that inheritance that you have given us. That, wrath, that, 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 that moth and rust will not destroy, that thieves won't steal. That inheritance that you've given us that can neither fade nor spoil being with you and your people forever. Keep our eyes on that, Lord. Help us to keep moving in that direction. Thank you that we Gentiles belong to you now in Christ. We were once far away, alienated, strangers. But the Lord Jesus has become a sign for the Gentiles. And we, by your Spirit, you have drawn us to Christ. We have come in and bowed down before Israel's Messiah. And we know him as our own King. And we thank you for granting us citizenship in that kingdom. 
We thank you for that great redemption that you have wrought for us in Jesus. We thank you for his death on the cross that takes away our sins. We thank you for the way that you have rescued us from sin and death and hell. Father, make us always grateful for that. Let us never take it for granted. Let us always remember what you have saved us from and what you have saved us for. To be a people who love you and are zealous for good works. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are the God who fulfills your promises. We thank you for the way that you have fulfilled those promises in the Old Testament in the Lord Jesus. And we thank you for the fulfillment that is yet to come in the new creation. We thank you for your Spirit whom you've given us as a, as a deposit guaranteeing the inheritance that is to come. We thank you that as we look and see what you have done and how you have fulfilled your promises, you, you fill us with confidence and hope because we know that you are reliable and that all your promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ and that you will rescue us from this world and bring us to your new home. And so, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us. We thank you for Isaiah. We thank you for that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training us in righteousness, that we might be useful for every good work. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. That's a New Testament scholar.